Well, good morning. Welcome to Calvary Bible Church. And if you've listened to us online or visited with us once or twice, you may have just realized that I am not the regular teaching pastor here. My name is Mike Caldwell, and I'm an elder here. And Pastor Dave is not with us this morning. And, uh, and so I'm filling in for him. It's an honor, it's a privilege, and it's one that, um, that I certainly don't take lightly. I feel much like I did at my college graduation, um, where I was um, sandwiched. Um, when I graduated, it was someone next to me or two down, whatever. It was magna cum laude this and summa cum laude this and presidential honors that. Mike Caldwell, come on up here, we'll get you a piece of paper. There you go, see you later, brother. And then magna cum laude, all the rest of the people. And I just was sandwiched in between these people, and I feel like that now, where last week, <laughs> right, and then next week we'll have pastor back, and so, and I'm sandwiched in between those two. Um, but we'll, we'll... We'll certainly get through, and what a blessing it is. It's a, it's a blessing to be here and an honor on this Lord's Day. Um, every week we do, we get to listen to Pastor, and it, it is, it's, it's such a blessing to hear him exposit the Scriptures in a way that it quenches our thirst for the Word, it brings honor to the King. And so with all that being said, bear with me this morning. Um, as I will do my best to take an in-depth look at a very well-known hymn uh, called It Is Well With My Soul. I, it's amazing we, 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 we just uh, sung that. Um, what with the internet and so forth, I could just send someone an email and tell them what I'm speaking on and we can sing it and get a, a view of the verses again. And I'm going to try once again to unpack this rather incredible hymn and my objective is I want to tell the story of the author, I want to tell the story of the hymn, but most importantly I want to take a look at all of the scripture that verifies all of these great lines of these amazing songs that we sing week in and week out. And God, he's asked each of us to bring the talents that he's given to us and that's what each of these talented writers, it's what they have done. They have brought the talents that they have. They've written these incredible hymns. And now, all these years later, we still sing them. And our objective is clearly um, we want to magnify the king, not the authors, but we want to come together this morning and see where is Christ exalted in these great hymns, and that lyric is just incredible. First Peter 4, 10 and 11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Being believers in Jesus and well-versed in the scriptures, 
It's easy to see where the lines in these hymns come from. The songs were written with these verses in mind. I'm going to write the time down. It seems like last time I did this, I got a little, I think I went over a little bit. I'll do some arithmetic in my head as we're going along. So if you see me ciphering, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. I love music. I just do. I think that it's so important in a worship service um, as well as just regularly doing life. We sing or we hum all the time, and this great theology that we sing and hum together, um, it's set to music, it's set to rhyme, and what a great way to remember some of the doctrine that we believe. Music, it shows up in Scripture, as we well know, um, and because of that, we sing it, and we sing it um, we sing it every Sunday. In fact, um, what Tommy read this morning in Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing, with singing. And we do. We come into his presence with singing. We exit with singing. We get in our cars. We drive away. We're singing. It's we're always singing. And what are we singing? But we're singing these incredible truths that magnify our king. Music, it shows up often in the scripture, as we well know. Israel used singing as part of their formal worship in the tabernacle and in the temple. First Chronicles 6, 31 and 32. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they performed their service according to their order. And we see Paul in the New Testament instruct the Colossians as well. Colossians three sixteen and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And of course, the Psalms, those are 150 songs and poems, some of which we've put to music even today. So scripture has much to say either about or with song. And this is not as much about the author and the hymn, again, but it's about the exaltation of Christ through the hymn and through the scriptures that back up the lines in the hymn. And that's my objective this morning. The story of this hymn is likely familiar to you. It was not to me. It was to my wife who said... Mike, everybody's going to know that history. She was, again, much like many of my college professors who would, in the middle of the lecture, say, obviously. And to me, I said, obviously to who? <laughs> um, but the, the, the story of this hymn 
It was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. He was a successful lawyer in Chicago who had invested a large part of his earnings in real estate. He was a devout Christian, and for a time, it seemed like things were going very well for him. In a phrase, he had peace like a river. It had attended, it attended his way. He was a successful lawyer, a businessman, a husband, a father. Things, in fact, were going quite well. Many of y'all, things are going quite well. Is that okay? Can I do that? I know pastor doesn't like it when we do that. Um, But I, yes, I would be thirsty. But in 1870, a series of, of events began to turn his life in the other direction. Horatio and his wife, Anna's only son, Horatio Jr., died. He died of scarlet fever, and he was only four years old. The following year, while still mourning the loss of their son, every single one of his real estate investments were lost in the great Chicago fire. But the bad news continued. Sometime later, knowing that the events of the past year had taken a toll on his family, he decided to take a vacation to England. And Shortly before they were to set sail, he had some business that came up and he needed to take care of it. So he decided to stay behind and catch up with them later. So he was going to be delayed on going on this trip but he persuaded his wife and his girls to go ahead knowing that he would be along shortly. In November of 1873, on the trip there, the ship his family had boarded collided with another ship. It sank and it killed 226 passengers, including his four daughters. Several days later, when the survivors had reached shore, he received a brief six-word telegram from his wife. Saved alone, what shall I do? So he did as any of us would do. He boarded a ship and headed to England to be with his wife. On the trip there, getting close to the spot where the ship sunk and his daughters had perished, the captain pointed out the place where the ship went down. And according to Bertha Spafford Vester, that's a daughter that he had who was born after all of the tragedy here, her father wrote, It is well with my soul while on this journey. And in these short verses, you can hear his heart and you can hear his belief in the Creator of the universe. And don't we do that? When tragedy strikes, we seem to dig a little deeper for some reason. Verse 1, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There are times in our life that are better than others. And there are times that are worse. But during the good times or the bad, 
Whatever my lot, if you are a believer in Jesus, we still praise him. And so often we praise him in song. And I I know I do. It's so easy to sing his praises in the good times, and we should. Our lives are not always difficult. We have to admit this. In fact, in the country that we live in now, we have it incredibly good right now. (laughs) Might not be as good as we would like, and hopefully it'll get better, but we're still very different from the rest of the world. I did a little internet research. In 2021, the World Watch List reveals that persecution is extremely high on the continent of Africa, where one in six Christians in Africa endure faith-based discrimination and violence. This one got me. In Nigeria alone, 10 Christians a day are murdered on average due to their love for Jesus. Being discovered as a Christian in North Korea, we all know, that can be a death sentence. If you aren't killed instantly, you'll be taken to a labor camp as a political criminal. These inhumane prisons have horrific conditions and few believers make it out alive. Everyone in your family will share the same punishment. Again, how, how easy it is to praise him when things are going good, right? But when I look back on all of the good things that have happened in my life, uh, I think how easy it has been to praise him. I don't even know where to start. What a blessing my life has been. And we all have these, these memories, these events, right? becoming a Christian, getting married, having children, celebrating birthdays, perfect days, landing a great job. There are so many of them. Almost two years ago, I was able, with major help from a lot of my extended family, meaning they paid for most of it, that's what that means, um, we were able to take our family to Chicago. And we saw the sights and the attractions. We went to a, a Cubs ball game And in fact, we ate enough pizza that I think we started to smell like pepperoni. I remember sitting in my seat in the sunshine on a perfect weather day with my girls, with Red, beside us, we're at Wrigley Field, and I think the place is just magical. The crowd comes alive as the Cubs in the later innings uh, begin to make a little comeback, and they beat the Braves. And I remember just sitting there with a smile on my face, knowing that the cancer was still in front of me, but thanking God for the opportunity to experience this with my girls, with my amazing wife. And these are the times when we praise him, and it's so easy. And there are so many more, and you have them too. We all do. We all do. So count your blessings, goes the phrase. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And it's so easy, again, to do this when peace 
like a river attendeth my way. But when sorrows like sea billows roll, well, we better have something to hang on to or we're going to get tossed out of the boat. Paul says we are to rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances, not some. And he doesn't even say most. He says all, all situations. And Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, it was intended to be an encouragement to this early church, praising them for their spiritual maturity and persistence and pressing them toward deeper growth in their faith. And doing this, no doubt, will grow it. Learning to praise God in all circumstances. Again, Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, 4 to 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, let's recall that Paul is asking us to praise God in all circumstances. And I can't help but to think that in many ways he's preaching to himself. After all, this letter to the Philippians is being written from prison. If ever the sea billows would roll, it would be then. And Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, would pen these words as he's in a Roman prison, not knowing if he would make it to the next day or not. And he's just been beaten almost to death, and he's sitting in stocks, so his movement is limited. Not very comfortable is Paul. And during all of that... He writes those words, rejoice in the Lord sometimes, oh, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Right now, as we sit here in our little padded seats, there's another in North Korea who's in prison. It's, <laughs> that's hard to get my head around. We are here, but by God's mercy and his sovereignty, we are here in this building. We get to come together each and every week, listen to pastor, sing these great songs, and read what Paul is telling us. Rejoice in the Lord always. And for some of us, our sea billows roll, and they're rolling now for some of us. Or they have rolled. We have unsaved children, the loss of children, the loss of a spouse, a family member, a job loss, financial issues, cancer. A stirred, hard sea wave can take the shape of many things. But hang on, because whatever my lot in life, it's well with my soul. <laughs> John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And that's what it means for it to be well with your soul. Knowing that if you are in Jesus and he is in you and you are truly in his hands, no one, no thing will snatch you out of his hand. What a promise. If you have repented from your sin and you are a believer in Jesus, it is indeed well with your soul. So this morning, as we finish up, let's be reminded of that. Because many of us are in that position and it is well with our soul. Verse 2. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. To buffet means to strike something repeatedly with force. I had to look it up. To attack. Now, that is a very poetic and a fitting word for the schemes of Satan. He wants to destroy God's people and he will attack. Attack repeatedly and he will attack hard. So let's be of 100% certainty here. Satan is real and he is active. You bring up the name of the devil and invariably the picture of some man dressed in red with horns and a long tail that might come up, this image. But don't be fooled because Satan would have you accept that he's nothing more than some costumed cartoon character. This is just another way to fantasize or commercialize the reality of what's real and what is indeed evil. There are enough Bible verses about Satan to help us understand who he is and what he wants to accomplish. Is Satan real? Yes. Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now here we see Satan actually speaking. It doesn't get much more real than that. He audibly speaks to the woman. We also see his power demonstrated as he takes the form of a serpent. And here in this garden scene, during this Genesis scene, the story of sin begins. And of course the scoffer would say, Mike, he's a snake. Isn't that fairy tale enough? He's a snake. More on the scoffers later. But where did Satan come from? Isaiah fourteen twelve gives us some hints. How, are, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Here we see the reality of Satan as a former angel that was thrown out of heaven. If we believe in angels, then we would or should believe in Satan as well. 
He's very real, and he wants nothing more to, to destroy what God has done and what God is currently doing. Revelation 12, 11 and 12. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. While his time here on earth to destroy people is limited, it is active, and he knows it. He knows his time is limited to get done what he wants to accomplish. He knows his clock, it's ticking. So, church, again, don't underestimate the schemes and the desires of Satan. He is real. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here, Paul is saying nothing that needs interpreting here. It's all very obvious. Be strong, be ready, and be prepared to fight off the darkness of Satan. But let's don't be discouraged. Make no mistake, and here's a spoiler alert for those that haven't read the back of the book. Satan will be defeated in the end. I read this. Revelation 20, it's in the back. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And so they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this isn't going to end well for Satan. There's going to be a day when he will be no more and we will be with Jesus in a sinless state 
with no Satan to contend with. And for, for us, for, for us, let this, as the song says, blessed assurance be the one that controls every part of our lives, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Because of the blood of Jesus, the penalty for my sin was paid on the cross. That blood that was shed was for me and for you. And that's the good news of the gospel. In coming to Christ, we admit our helpless estate. We run, we in fact would sprint to the cross, recognize and hate our sin, repent of it, and cry out to the one who has shed his own blood for my soul. I bear my sin no more because it was nailed to the cross. And this is the fundamental theological issue of the Christian faith. This is what distinguishes us from all the other, quote, religions of the world. Our sins have been paid for. We don't work for them. It isn't something we did, but it's something that God did. Horatio, in a second, he calls this fact that we're talking about, he calls this fact bliss and a glorious thought. Let's meditate for a bit on that thought. Paul thought on this very often and includes it in almost all of his writing. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. That's our promise. We were dead in our sins, but through the blood of Christ that was spilled for us, spilled on the ground below the cross that Jesus was nailed to, that blood is the blood that paid our debt record before the king and the creator of the universe. That sin was indeed nailed to the cross. (laughs) These hymns, right? I mean, and we sing them all the time. And if we sing them and really, really sing them and really focus on the words... These are, these are the verses that come out to us, that come to our minds. We think of these things and we think of these tremendous promises and why, <laughs> why that just doesn't move many of us to tears. I don't know. That's a tough one. Colossians 2. And you who were dead, I'm sorry, verse 3 rather, sorry. Verse 3. My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, he says, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. 
Isn't this thought truly glorious and truly bliss? My sin, not in part, but the whole. Every bit of my sin. The sins from our pathetic pasts that we might still weep over from time to time. Our day-to-day sin that we live with and pray about and plead with God to help us. Those sins, all of those sins, are nailed to the cross. And we hate them. Before those truths can really mean anything to us, we have to understand our condition before and apart from Christ. This is the understanding that causes the bliss, this glorious thought. First, we were dead in our trespasses. Dead. Second, we were in debt to God infinitely, infinitely beyond our capacity to pay. And it isn't as if we just happened to find ourselves in this terrible situation. We were born into it. We were born sinners with no hope at all. If you do not believe that you were born a sinner, have some children. And just observe. And you will see. You will see. Psalm 51 Three through five. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And here it is Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You are a born sinner. You're brought forth in iniquity and you have to come to grips with this. You are not a good person. And I know we want to think of ourselves this way, right? But we are not. I don't care how many times you helped little old miss so-and-so cross the road or help her to her car. You are not a good person. And you will stand in front of a just God one day and you better have someone there with you who will say, I I paid his fine. He's good. You don't want to pay that fine on your own. But thanks be to Christ alone. If you are a Christian, your fine has been paid. Listen to the passion of Paul's pen and his voice. This thought is bliss. It's truly a glorious thought. He's pleading with the church in Ephesus and here today. Hear me. Hear me, he's saying. Hear this glorious thought, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, (laughs) being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice in that passage, you did nothing but God, right? But God made us alive together with Christ. You did nothing. God did everything, and he did it through the blood and the suffering of his son. That blood was shed so that we wouldn't be dragged down into the pit with the Lord of darkness, but so that we would be lifted up into the heavens in his glorious light for all eternity. That, that is the blessed assurance that would control our lives. Because of that, we can, as believers, confidently say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I bear the weight of that sin no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Mm. Such great verses. Last verse, verse 4. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Excuse me. I love how so many of these great hymns leave us with Christ's, or thoughts of Christ's imminent return for his saints. So many of them do. Listen as we sing in the morning and you'll hear the promise of his return over and over again. And I can just imagine Horatio pinning those words with tears in his eyes. The same tears that we shed when the sea billows roll. His tears were for the reality of the cross, his forgiven sin, the mourning of the tremendous loss of his children, and the promise of Christ's return. Those were what brought him tears. These are the same reasons we get emotional when these great verses are proclaimed in song. We all have sea billows of various size and various aggression. We understand the reality of the cross. We know our own sin. And we know the hope we have in his return. All of these things cause us great joy and rejoicing mixed with tears. The reality of his return is demonstrated so well in the scriptures. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the prophecy 
of a Savior coming to earth to save his people. And all of these prophecies proved to be true in the coming of our Lord Jesus in Bethlehem. And now the New Testament prophecies point to another return. And as sure as the Trump, or as sure as the first one happened, I should say, so will the second one. <laughs> the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. The trump will sound and the Lord shall descend. <laughs> what a day. Horatio, he, he says, even so, as believers, we're ready. And even if he returned right now, that's okay. Because it is well. But a day of fear and trembling for some. A day that the scoffers today would laugh at. A fairy tale, they would say, to make us Christians feel better, to deal with death better. A mind game that Christians play, they would say. This is what the scoffers would tell us. Second Peter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And isn't this the world we live in now? Isn't this it? The unsaved, they just go on living. They put their trust and faith in anything but the return of our Savior. They put their trust in a shot. <laughs> we are laughed at. Many times we're mocked, we're laughed at for believing such a thing. Ridiculous to those that God has not revealed truth to. Second Peter 3, 5 to 9 continues. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens exist long, existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I, for one, am very grateful for his patience with me, not wishing for me to perish. So he called me unto himself before all of this takes place. And we pray for all of the lost in the same way. And there's a tension there. We long for the day, waiting, hastening for that day, but we pray that God might be merciful and save those that we love. Save them now before his imminent return. And we look for it. We wait for that day. 
Luke reminds us in Acts of what to look for and what we will see. Acts 1, 9 to 11. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Can you imagine what that looked like? I love to imagine that scene as well as the dissension of our Savior to take us into heaven for all of eternity. Listen to this description, 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Are you encouraged? (laughs) I know I am. These words encourage me. When I read them in scripture, when I sing them in song, we have faith that all of this is going to happen. It's what you and I, it's what we put our hope in. We're like the Israelites of the Old Testament. We're waiting, we're hoping, we're watching, and it happened. He came. We know it's going to happen again. This is the hope that we have. We sing these great songs to help us remember the promises of, of Scripture. What encouragement we have in this. Do we remind each other and ourselves of this fact and often? Do you love to think on it, talk about it, sing about it? Do you long for it? I truly want to be here, I honestly do, when all of this takes place. I want to see what's that going to look like. But if God has other plans... And he calls me home, and you as well, before, before all of this transpires, we might look forward to a backstage pass of this very event. And what a scene it's going to be. I imagine Horatio thinking on these same things as well, as he grieves for the deaths of his children. I know he longs for the day when that reunion will take place. He longs for the day when he will see his Savior face to face. And I do as well. So I conclude with with this. These things are prophesied to happen, and they will. As sure as the birth of our Savior happened, so will his return. Prophecy in Scripture happens. 
it comes true. And so will this. So, is it well? Are you 100% sure that it is well with your soul? And if not, I would plead with you that this would be the day and perhaps even the hour that you would cry out to the creator of the universe, repent of your sin and believe on the person of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you will die in your sins. And there is no escape from the punishment except through the blood of Christ. And that, that is, that's the gospel message. And I know that with the spirit of, of relativism that lives in this world today, that that is a very unpopular thing to say and believe. But it's true. There is only one way for it to be well with your soul. Peter is quoted by Luke in Acts, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. Is it well with your soul? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have had to come together to open up your word and to read all of these tremendous verses that remind us of the promises that you have given us, that these promises will indeed take place. And I pray that if there is anyone who does not know you in a saving way. I pray that this would be the day. Open their hearts, God. Open their hearts so that this would be the day that they hear the gospel and that they hear it in such a way that they might come to know you so that it is indeed well with their soul. Thank you again for this opportunity. We love you. We praise you. We just ask that you would be with us the rest of the day so that we might go forth in a very dark world and be lights for you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior and our Redeemer, Christ Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.